This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast series on New Books Network. My name is Hui Ying Chen, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. Today, it is our pleasure to have Dr. Luo Liang here with her new book, The Global White Snake. Thank you so much. Uh, the Global White Snake examines the Chinese white snake legends and their extensive multi-directional travels within Asia and across the globe. Such travels across linguistic and cultural boundaries have generated distinctive traditions as the white snake has been reinvented in the Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and English-speaking worlds. The book, The Global White Snake, uncovers how the white snake legend often acts as an unsettling narrative of radical tolerance for hybrid sexualities loving across traditional boundaries, subverting authority, and valuing the strange and the uncanny, which serves a timely mediation and reflection on our contemporary moment of continued struggle for minority rights and social justice. The Global White Snake revives the radical, anti-authoritarian spirit slithering under the tales of monsters and demons, love and lust, and reminds us of the power of the fantastic and the fabulous in inspiring and empowering personal and social transformations. Welcome, welcome again, Dr. Luo Liang. Thank you so much for taking the time to read and having me on. Of course, yes. So um, as you are first to greet our audience, would you like to say a little bit more about um, your own beginnings. Books really reflect our personal and scholarly journeys and our personal and scholarly growth. So um, my personal, um, I came from Sichuan, like the Ermei mountain, where White Snake is supposedly from. And um, went to Beijing for college, for undergrad um, in the Chinese department took my MA in comparative literature and word literature. That's how it was called at the time, the major, um, in the same Chinese department at Beijing Normal University. And then went on to um, um, come to this country in the last century, in 1999, to do my PhD. Oh, I just told everyone how old I am. Um, anyway... Um, so basically, um, personal travels are also very important, I think, to, to reflect upon um, the travel of texts and tales and culture. 
So I think that's actually a very important question to reflect on um, the genesis of books. This is, um, in particular for a second book, has much longer trajectories, um, you know, to maybe the compared to the first book. So I have also a story to tell about how did I come to write this book. But um, yeah, I graduated um, 2006. That's another betrayal <laughs> in terms of age. <laughs> um, and yeah, um, that's why. Yeah, it's, it's long in the making. I think it comes from my sort of PhD work with Tian Han, of course, but we can talk about that um, when I talk about the, you know, the travel of um, <laughs> ideas and yes. how the book came about. Yes, yes. Thank you for sharing with the audience a little bit of your personal travels. And then maybe you could reveal, uh, reveal to us a little bit more how your personal journeys take you to this particular book. The second book. Congratulations, mm -hmm. by the way. Thank you. Thank <laughs> yes. you. Um, so as the second book, The Global White Snake takes an even longer route to get to. <laughs> but along the way, I have also changed as a person and as a scholar. So the short version of the story is that it came about because of Tian Han. When I was researching uh, for my first book, The Avant-Garde and the Popular in Modern China, published um, in 2014, long time ago, actually, by the same press, by University of Michigan Press in uh, 2014. I was quite taken when I was researching um, Tian Han and his Beijing opera version of The White Snake, uh, which was written actually in the early 1950s and widely performed uh, by different even local opera groups as well as Beijing opera groups and other um, sort of genre, uh, performance genre, uh, in the 1950s and onward. So because I had to end the 2014 book around the late 1950s, I kind of ran out of steam. <laughs> um, so I, I'm determined to sort of pick up that in um, the second book and really um, hoping to continue tracing the transformation and transformative power of the white snake legend from the 1950s onward to the contemporary times. I did put in an epilogue of the 2014 book, sort of gesturing towards contemporary developments like with two, three pages, but that's really not satisfactory to my own sort of aspiration of always thinking about the contemporary while doing our historical and um, cultural research. So I'm really grateful for this opportunity in the second book to continue that trajectory. So you are not uh, just, so, so in this book, uh, the, the new book, The Global mm -hmm. White Snake, you are not just uh, uh, tracing it forward. No, not yeah, just that, you're right. Not just after the 1950s, but you're mm -hmm. actually dating it back as well, as well to That's the late to, 19th century. Thanks to Professor Leo Lee's um, advice, I was debating whether I should just write a book about the Cold War, actually. I was really debating whether I should just write a book about Chinese, Japanese, Korean uh, versions between the 1950s and 1970s. I was really debating that. And it didn't turn out to be that book. Um, not only because I do feel like I need to do more work on my um, languages and cultures uh, to be like, 
solidifying uh, to have equal weight on the Chinese, Japanese, Korean, you know, in order to like sustain a really good, well-researched book. But also I see the value of the advice of tracing uh, it back to the late 19th century, early to mid 20th century, which became some of the most juicy um, aspects of the chapter on the Shanghai, of course, um, urban culture and white snake performances. But also it does provide a much better historical grounding for the Cold War and the contemporary stories. And that's sometimes when I review books, I often feel if it's a PRC book, people tend to only, to the most, go back to the 1940s um, and not pay much attention to the late chain development, which is so central to any of the PRC developments, actually. Um, of course, that's easy to say, hard to do, but I still think a longer historical perspective is going to be very helpful for many of the contemporary projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for doing that. Actually, it, um, it's really two very interesting, extremely fascinating chapters, the first two. Uh, on uh, the Thunder Peak Pagoda as well as Samuel Woodbridge's mm-hmm. translation. But before we go to the juicy details, uh, would you mind, I know it's probably not <laughs> the favorite thing you like to do, but would you mind uh, introducing the story, the basic line, basic storyline of the White Snake to us? So what is who is White Snake and what is this story about? This is really hard for me to do, as you um, already know. And I'm going to try to um, um, follow what I come up with um, in the introduction, basically. So int- the introduction is actually intended for that purpose, right? So it's called Introduction to the White Snake Legends, basically. It's chapter one, introductory chapter. And here um, on page two, I already uh, sort of attempted to do that, what you're asking me to do. So basically, I tried very hard to combine many different versions. And here is what I come up with. Um, It recounts how a white snake spirit transforms itself into a beautiful woman and goes to West Lake in Hangzhou, either to fulfill her predestined role on Earth or to experience the beauty of the human world. You see, I already give two interpretations. She meets a handsome young man named Xu Xian or Xu Xuan at the famous Broken Bridge and quickly begins a sexual relationship with him. In the meantime, her destruction of innocent humans and other living creatures and her violation of the boundary between the human and the non-human attract the attention of Fahai. So there are two kinds of reasons. I was um, attracted. One is really she's evil. She distracts innocent humans. But the other is the more widely understood version of violating the boundary between the human and the non-human. So Faha is a Buddhist um, abbot uh, with the power of recognizing and exorcising demons and spirits. White snake is forced to drink um, um, a kind of medicine-scented wine during the Dragon Boat Festival which leads her to show her serpentine form to Xu Xian, scaring him to death. She risks her life and accompanying um, to steal a magic herb um, to revive Xu, but Fa Hai tricks Xu Xian into leaving his wife and accompanying him to the Golden Mountain Monastery 
here, Fakai tricks him or uh, whatever means um, that he led Xu Xian to the mountain is also open to discussion. White Snake and her companion Green Snake, in an attempt to reclaim Xu Xian, mobilizes water spirits under their command and fight Fahai's heavenly soldiers. However, she is defeated partly because of her pregnant body. Whether she has a pregnant body is also open to different versions. Um, in the version where she's pregnant, she barely escapes, escapes to the broken bridge where she reconciles with a repentant Xu. After giving birth to a boy, she's imprisoned by Fahai under the Thunder Peak Pagoda and is released decades after. In, uh, by what means she's released is also open to multiple different versions. My God, I feel like I'm a failure of telling a coherent story. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think um, uh, I, I shall apologize to our audience as well because I am well very familiar with the story. But as you were talking, uh, recapping, and also as I was reading the introduction, I think um, Liang, you did a wonderful job of um, providing a as brief but also as comprehensive as possible the literary lineage of this story um, before before the 19th century, before Samuel Woodbridge came along and did a bold translation of it. So um, as our readers, you will find out from the book or from any online platform, The White Snake uh, is a very popular folklore or legend or myth um, that um, has been in China or has been in active in East Asian traditions for a long time, as um, early as the 11th century, or even early, I mean, appearing in text format. And uh, now we have the storyline in our mind. <laughs> the two snakes, the white snake, the green snake, the, uh, the husband, and also the abbot, righteous or uh, nosy. Um, we have these four figures, and now we came to um, the late 19th century and this um, American missionary, Samuel Woodbridge, based in Shanghai and attempting or achieving this English translation as Leon was starting her book in chapter two. Would you like to tell a little bit more about um, either Samuel Woodbridge's translation or the other Cloud's translation? Or, or how, why you would like to start, why you want to start, uh, not one, why you have chosen to start your book with these two translations? Hmm. Yeah, I think it's um, really also a surprise to myself. Uh, I think the, the sources, the materials uh, really led me to a kind of um, drama or conflict, a setup between the anglophone uh, source materials and the sinophone um, sources uh, in, the, in this chapter, chapter two, which is actually the first chapter after the introductory chapter and the first chapter of part one. Uh, this chapter is titled the, the White Snake Problem versus the White Snake Industry, right? So the White Snake Problem is from the missionary, um, mainly uh, Woodbridge's point of view, 
about how um, this sort of uh, um, this believing legend and and this sort of uh, worshiping of semi gods and um, goblins, fairies, and dragons um, is um, sort of a, a feverish mind of the Chinese people that should be cured by maybe the gospel of the, um, Jesus Christ. So this sort of anti-Buddhist um, um, sad, um, sort of position and gesture is very much um, in um, agreement with his, his missionary um, objectives and purposes uh, at the time, for sure. But I think um, the surprising aspect of my own researching and finding, finding is that it, it became uh, very obvious that this is sort of um, falling in love with the white snake type of story. Um, the missionary gets seduced by the text that he's using to critique Buddhist uh, transmigration. Basically, he attributes all the uh, beliefs in um, demigods and, and goblins to the Buddhist idea of transmigration and think um, he could sort of cure them with um, this um, text as a, as a almost like peeling pikong, right? With uh, with this text as a as a counter um, example of what what you should do, but this text became um, a trap, and the mystery of the white snake is um, hard to resist for the for the American missionary. So I'm also really excited that the text that I was led to eventually became sort of an American nineteenth um, century story, then American twenty first century story sort of the bookend of the middle chapters that's more Asian language focused, both uh, Chinese, Japanese, and Korean, the middle chapters, uh, sort of uh, framed by this transformation of the Anglophone um, tradition, yeah, from the 19th century missionary diplomatic to the 21st century, more Asian American, Chinese American activist uh, projects. So you are... Um telling us the white snake problem. However, um, the first chapter is also titled, the complete title was Ver- White Snake Problem Versus the White Snake Industry. So yeah. what is this industry you're referring to? That's a great question. Um, so when I was uh, researching the late 19th century texts, so the two te- Anglophone texts are both from Americans 1898 and 1906. The second is by Cloud, who is a missionary. Um, but then around the same time, um, Shen Bao and many other Chinese language newspapers, many of them illustrated journals, theater journals, and other um, popular uh, magazines around the same time um, seem to be forming what I would call uh, an industry. So it's very profit profitable, but very popular, also very uh, impactful in terms of everyday behaviors. Um, I remember one instance in the 1930s um, in the summer heat, uh, when everyone is uh, crowded in the theater, they start to introduce central heating for the White Snake performances. So it's just a small example of how um, sort of pervasively impactful um, this um, subject matter and as a, as a multimedia platform, when radio came in, it became 
um, some of the most um, widely used, uh, you know, white snake, different genre of performances on radio uh, became some of the most widely used promotional uh, tools for various uh, um, sort of leading um, uh, first rate um, commercial products. So in that sense, I think it's an industry uh, that um, nobody can overlook, uh, not even the missionaries. And, and that became quite obvious when um, Woodbridge moved to Shanghai and died there in the 1920s. So the reason I want to sort of put them together is um, um, sort of a drama between these two views and how white snake legends became sort of consuming um, to the missionaries as well as the Chinese um, participants in this popular cultural industry in the uh, early to mid 20th century. Yes. So as you were talking about early to mid uh, 20th century, um, with the introductions of new technologies uh, used in theater or used in um, media productions or different kinds of media, were introduced, whether it's photography or uh, different kinds of um, art form to reproduce this story. There is this one historical event actually happening in 1924, in September 25, 1924. Uh, and that's the main theme of chapter two. So before you start, I want to comment a little bit that uh, so in the first chapter, we were talking about clouds translation, uh, that in, including uh, the white snake story in between this city guide. And that's exactly the feeling I had when reading chapter two. So I feel that chapter two is really peculiar. It's different from all the other chapters that it has this central um, real historical happening. <laughs> then it's the question of truth, right? It's a, a real pagoda that um, that collapsed, and then um, it just came upon all diff uh, all kinds of interpretations or kinds of um, impacts that intertwine with historical reality or uh, this fantastical uh, narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. And it's very confusing. It's the second chapter of part one, but it's actually chapter three. So it's uh, it's not uh, the best way of organizing the chapters. <laughs> you're talking about chapter three, the fall of the pagoda and the rise of the white snake. It's the second chapter. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I yeah, apologize. Because, yes. No, no, no. It's the totally confusing. <laughs> introduction yes. is called chapter one. So it's totally confusing. Yes. But you're talking about the second chapter in part one, uh, which is um, really interesting what you're saying about the historical sort of physical ruins as a testimony to how real this event is. And then the rise of the white snake, the second part, it's similarly uh, set up as a drama, you know, just like the sinophone and the anglophone is more of a sort of a dynamic contradiction, but also convergent in the first chapter of part one, which is chapter two. Um, in this chapter, I also intended to uh, set up in the title, The Fall of the Pagoda and the Rise of the White Snake, Lei Feng Ta Dao, Bai Shi Chu Shi. So basically, this is what it is in the back of my mind, the Chinese saying, um, 
of how White Snake will rise from the ashes of the um, ruins of the Leifeng Pagoda. Um, in reality, in reality, um, it did um, have um, a huge sort of uh, psychological impact. Um, I, I think I mentioned something like it's an intellectual earthquake, more so than the sort of uh, the physical uh, collapsing and ruin in front of the eyes of uh, people like Yu Pingbo. Um, and um, who are these people? Um, they actually all visited the ruins right after it, it fell and, and started to write, to paint, to take pictures, to compose poetry, to write music, to make film, to start stage performances. So this is um, um, sort of reactionary not like in the political right-wing sense, but to reaction, um, to, uh, to reacting to the, to the physical uh, collapse of the pagoda uh, through cultural means. So the, the rise of the white snake is really um, partly because of uh, that historical reality. The, the more interesting historical coincidence or um, reality is the ent entering of Sun Chuanfang's army into Hangzhou, I think, and was reported as um, the Thunder Peak Pagoda. Who stole whose thunder? I forgot. But there's this very funny uh, um, sort of uh, um, current affair style uh, photojournalist report on, you know, the um, the warlords fighting while the <laughs> pagoda uh, was collapsing seem to be some sort of echoing in terms of uh, the reality word and the fantasy word. So there's a lot of deliberate, actually, um, um, sort of coming together in, on the part of the intellectuals or um, contemporaries, um, including Lu Xing and many others. He's just one of the most well-known. But there's female writers that I really think should, should be better known, and there are... Uh, Many uh, traditional Chinese style painters and West, uh, trained Western style painters, and other um, for profit, non profit, all kinds of uh, companies and agencies that's participating in this chorus or this this uh, assemblage of um, visual, um, uh, musical, and um, textual uh, representations. Yes, I think um, while Lu Xun's short essay is probably most well-known, but I would urge our readers to read this um, two-page summary or kind of translation of uh, the white snake modern, this <laughs> impersoned um, white snake's arguments of how uh, or why we should never rebuild uh, the Thunder Peak Pagoda from page 92 to 93. It's, it's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> That's supposedly picked up by um, someone by the side of the West Lake. So you have all these, just like Edgar Allan Poe would say, you know, I picked up this mm -hmm. manuscript um, and, and there's this historical, sort of historical manuscript in its material form that exists before I sort of made it up. And everyone knows he made it up. But this sort of <laughs> lend its uh, truth value is, is quite fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So we are uh, moving on 
from early 19th century, uh, I mean, late 19th century, early 20th century, and then to this um, post-war that you were saying you in initially intend to start, if I get you right. Yes. Uh, which are uh, part two that consists, consists of three extremely interesting chapters about um, Japanese, um, Korean, and uh, um, I think it's just two chapters. It's Hong Kong is part of the Korean story. I couldn't really make it into an individual chapter. Yeah, it's part the Korean story. It's called Korean um, uh, in the context of in the inter Asian context or something. Yeah, so I was trying to put much more than the Korean story in the Korean chapter, which may be misleading. Yes. Chapter two, two, part two, three, two chapters, chapter four and chapter five about a Japanese, Japanese story uh, and a Korean story. Yes. So what is um, one thing you would like our reader to remember about uh, Japanese versions? I think it all for me um, came about because of Miyazaki Hayao, the animation, the animator, and I read his biography and autobiography. Biography. I was very fascinated by his encounter with the uh, 1958 Japanese animation uh, anime version of the White Snake. That's um, really uh, maybe also the most well known. Um, it was. Um, dubbed and imported into the U.S. as Panda and the Magic Serpent. Um, and many of the uh, people growing up in the 1960s, it was um, imported in 1961, three years after it was made in Japan. And um, if you read the, the Amazon reviews by the Americans growing up in the 1960s, um, they got very confused about whether it's a Chinese film or a Japanese film to start with because of the so-called Chinese elements that's so prominent in this Japanese anime, right? Even the title has panda. But also, if you look at the color film, all the interior designs has, has red wooden furnitures and wooden frames, pen, uh, dragons and pandas, and all, all those Chinese elements. So I was very fascinated uh, because um, I'm, of, I'm interested in um, the reason um, Miyazaki is involved. So I was tracing backwards. Um, not to mention, um, I've long been fascinated by Tian Han's um, encounter with the White Snake film called Hakujaden or The Last of the Serpent by uh, Tanizaki Junichiro, um, made around 1920s. Uh, one of the first so-called pure cinema movement films um, in the early, um, in the Taisho period. So it was um, very interesting for me to start every chapter with Tianhan almost. Um, this is also another kind of um, the travel of ideas and the genesis of my second book type of story, right? I would uh, really go in the chapter with Tianhan as my guide and his encounter with other Japanese how they trade stories, just like any Chinese and Japanese scholars do at the time. They basically talk about Chinese folklore when they meet. 
And so, in a way, it's very fascinating. All the self-acclaimed, um, self-claimed modernists—they were really talking about folk tales, and the avant-gardists—they are really very interested in sort of traditional themes and just uh, how they are going to make it their own and make it part of their avant-gardist project or popular for-profit project is very fascinating to me. So that, that is the basically the entry point. But, but I think, um, you know, your sources always surprise you <laughs> sometimes. By the end, I think I came um, up uh, after combing through these three films, which was um, the first one is the unconventional choice, uh, the Ugetsu film uh, by Gen uh, Mitoguchi Kenji is a is a uh, unconventional choice because most people think that's a that's a film about female ghost, and although the core of the film is based on uh, Ugetsu Monogatari, the 18th century Japanese tale co- collection, um, and the core of it uh, are two short stories from that collection. One is precisely Hakujaden, uh, uh, the the Last of the Serpent, uh, but uh, uh, which the 1920s uh, black and white um, Tanizaki film is based upon also. Um, but because of the sort of um, reinvention um, of the white snake into a female ghost, a lot of people have not looked at it in the trajectory of the white snake story. So that's, for me, it's super interesting. I really want to insist on looking at it in the trajectory in addition, I want to insist on looking at it in the tradition of um, Southern Chinese painting and how this whole invention of national painting, um, um, as already studied um, by Ida Yue Wang, um, is very interesting to me. Um, the this, this whole idea of um, inventing a Chinese-style painting has to do with encounter with Japan in the early 20th century. But now, this whole idea of inventing a post-war Japanese cinema as black and white, you know, uh, the 1953 prize winners are all fitting into that category for the Japanese uh, black and white monochrome films, has a lot to do with actually the invented tradition of um, Chinese painting (laughs) as it is in the 20th century. Uh, People like Gao Jianfu, I think I mentioned later, um, this whole Guohua tradition. Um, so I'm I'm really interested in the multidirectional inferences and travels, and want to uh, remind everyone how we all have a lot to to learn and enrich ourselves if we just keep an open mind and don't quickly jump into cultural appropriation accusation and think more openly about we, we are already appropriated, uh, you know, in our cultures and there's no pure um, unappropriated, uh, unappropriated culture in any, any uh, single instance. So that's, that's very uh, fascinating to me, the, the multiple ways of circulating and impacting and learning from someone who already learned from you in the past, but then having something to offer them now and maybe that goes on this sort of um, gift giving of cultural uh, exchanges yeah and this is 
exactly what you said in the first page of introduction, chapter one, introduction, <laughs> that um, <laughs> this book, The White Snake, tell a story not of cultural appropriation, but of culture as appropriation. I think um, when I read it, I underlined it. And as you were saying, exactly in this chapter, uh, chapter four. Let's call it the Japanese yes. cinema chapter. Japanese <laughs> cinema chapter. So Japanese <laughs> cinema chapter. Yes, and also the Korean. Uh, I think you're right saying it's, it has the Korean in the title, but it's actually a uh, multinational effort or multi-regional effort uh, of Korean, um, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, mainland China kind of joint effort. There's one more thing in this um, Japanese cinema chapter <laughs> that uh, I would like to ask is um, the, uh, the addition of red scarf. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Madame White Snake or the story of White Snake, um, in many different versions, kind of centered on the color white for the snake, for the white snake, or the green for the the green snake. Right. Um, kind of these are the two major colors. Some somewhere else there might be black or uh but this red scarf, this color red, is really prominent um, in this film, or I haven't seen the film, but uh, in your description, in your analysis of this film. What do you think um, special or uh, about this? Um, in this context, I think it's really interesting. Um, I was giving a talk and I was cutting uh, the the frame of the film where the red scarf is so prominently uh, in close up, and um, one frame is like it's spread on the floor um, as if just uh, Xu Xian's desires. It's not one of the illustrations in the book, unfortunately, because uh, we already have like more than fifty. Um, it's this sort of red scarf spread out as if his desire is overflowing. So very uh, quickly, I interpreted as, you know, um, it's this desire of uh, Xu Xian, but also uh, the magic of White Snake. So basically, um, in the opening, you do see a, a color illustration with White Snake holding the red scarf on page 124. Um, and her white pearls are also very prominent because white pearls and red scarf are the sort of contrasting colors and symbolisms in this uh, 1956 live action film starring uh, Li Xianglan or uh, Yamaguchi Yoshiko or Shirley Yamaguchi. So she has um, three lives and three uh, performance careers in, uh, in Japan, in China, and in uh, America, actually, in the post-war period. So um, in a way, when you look at this, um, this is not just Xu Xian's desire, but also her desire and her magic. So the next frame would be the red scarf as if uh, by magic flew to Xu Xian and covering his face all over. Uh, right after this frame on 124. But then um, he, he takes it and put it inside his body. And then the next time, 
when they are already separated and they followed him through the Da Yunhe to Zhenjiang when he was on exile. And he's going to deny uh, recognizing them. But the red scarf would, as if by magic, came out <laughs> from his chest, as if, you know, his, his connection with them, as if it's by magic. But, you know, of course, the special effect team is very... Uh, efficient and 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 very um, uh, good uh, by by the standard of 1950s. So in a way, I sort of did a rather simplistic interpretation as desire and uh, magic. But now that I think about it, it could be also sort of revolutionary. Um, could be also um, there's multiple ways of thinking about it. You know, red in the 1950s <laughs> context could be very political and revolutionary or even just transgressive. So in that sense, it's also um, fitting the interpretation as desire and magic. I think it's connected to that possibility as well. But it's definitely an invention by the, by the Japanese. Not to mention uh, the color, uh, the use of color in the 1950s um, is... Um, um, it won a prize for its use of color in the Berlin Film Festival. Ah, no wonder. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yes. Um, so we have the Japanese story of this three very interesting films, animation and also um, um, actor, actress film. Um, and then chapter five about... Um, not necessarily a Korean story, but Korean cinema that um, realized via a joint inter-Asian um, effort mm-hmm. of three films, if mm-hmm. I... Uh... Yes, precisely. Um, mm-hmm. 1960, 1960 is the first, and then 1969, second, both by, made by the same legendary director, Shin Sang-oh. And then the third one is really ambiguous, 1978, starring Lin Qingxia, or Bridget Lin. Yeah. What's one thing that you um, want our readers, uh, listeners, mm-hmm. to remember, to take home from this chapter? I think this chapter really... Um, I think both the Japanese and the Korean chapters are um, sort of having multiple contributions. One is sort of archival, uh, because a lot of the the texts, films, have not been um, studied or have not been studied in the context of the White Snake legend. So in that sense, I think it's uh, excavating some of the text, in particular the second Korean film, uh, has been long forgotten um, and miscatalogued um, in the Korean film archive as dead woman for a long time. Until recently, um, I informed them and through a graduate student in Korea, and they changed it to uh, snake woman, simply because Sanyo has to, uh, 
has multiple Chinese character possibilities, and one is a snake, uh, but the other is uh, another possibility is dead. So um, because of that misclassification, uh, I think many, many uh, people didn't recognize this uh, as, um, in fact, a white snake film made by the same director who made uh, uh, Picks Up Ying, which is uh, Madame White Snake, in 1960. Um, so uh, that's one uh, really important missing link that's sort of uh, uh, reconnected. But I think the other uh, really important question about this inter-Asian um, episode or the Cold War um, transmigration in the sense or transgression um, in the sense that it really connects mainland China uh, with the other parts of uh, the Cold War, that is Taiwan, Hong Kong, and the um, um, other parts of um, capitalist, uh, if you are using the Cold War um, bamboo curtain um, logic, um, it has its contribution by saying that um, by reacting to some of the early or mid-1950s Chinese um, Huangmei um, opera films, um, many of the uh, White Snake reproductions from the 50s and eight, uh, 60s and 70s later um, have sort of their origin in that kind of really beautified, feminized, and very cultivated um, opera film style, right? And we maybe one of the most popular, which I didn't really talk about, I didn't want to, um, is the 1962-63 uh, Lin Dai version, which is made by Shaw Brothers um, and directed by Yue Feng. Um, or maybe not. I could be wrong, but it's the 1962-63 Shaw Brothers version. And that's really uh, important, but we seem to only know that. And nobody knows the, uh, the Korean director, Shin Sang-oh, has done a really beautiful version in 1960, um, a few years before. And they all know each other uh, in terms of the circulation of film and co-production efforts um, from the early 1960s onwards. So when Shin sang made his second White Snake film in 1969, he soon went to Hong Kong to start making like ghost films. You know, that's why female ghosts and white snakes are very, very intricately connected. Not to mention this second film also has all the hybrid um, possibilities from um, a fantasy, a love story, a horror film, um, martial arts film, and, uh, um, you know, all these hybrid genres, uh, even maybe um, eroticism, and all these uh, slapstick comedy, all these um, genres are going to dominate Hong Kong film and later uh, developments in the 70s. So by tracing this really missing uh, link in the larger um, scheme of the inter-Asian um, multidirectional um, cinematic exchanges, I think we can really understand Taiwan, Hong Kong, Films, even you know the 1992 Zhao Yazhi version, much better, much better 
in terms of having a better grounding of where did that come from? I got really surprised when I see the 1975 Taiwan version where slapstick, comedy, eroticism, martial arts, fantasy all come together, <laughs> which I now know it has a lot of traces from the second uh, Korean film, I would argue, the 1969 Shinsang film that's lost, that's long lost. There's one more detail that you talked about in the book that I want to ask one more question, which is about uh, 1960 Shin Sanol's film that you were talking about the white snake and um, the male protagonist, Xu Xian, were holding hands, mm-hmm. were shown holding hands only three minutes into the film. So why is this holding hands three minutes into the film uh, important or significant? Uh, is the presentation of, or representation of intimacy um, in big screen important or was it significant um, to the storyline of White Snake that they are centered on intimacy or this love on first sight or mm-hmm. political reasons? Yeah, mm-hmm. what was um, the significant part about this scene? Mm, it's a good question. I was um, first very, very surprised. So when, whenever you um, encounter something from a different tradition, um, you get this sense of difference, and that may challenge your preconceived ideas about what things should be. In a Chinese film, you wouldn't see them holding hands. You would have various ways of, you know, um, connecting them, but not even maybe use an umbrella to (laughs) help her or something. I was like trying to imagine what a Chinese director at the time would do, not directly holding hands. So the hands um, became amplified uh, for me in that moment. And I uh, traced the hands um, and its contact in the second Xinjiang film as well, because the second Xinjiang film is actually very philosophical. It's about um, the statue maker, this artist and his statue, and hands of the artist, and hands of the Buddhist statue became also close-up uh, materials and very much amplified. Um, so as actually uh, the Jap... Let me think. I think the Japanese version had something in terms of um, body contacts as well, in terms of 1953, when the female ghost inviting the, the um, craftsman, another craftsman, this time he's, uh, he's a pottery maker, so he's not a statue maker. But you can see the traces of the hands and the, the usefulness or the power of the artist's hands and then the, the power of seduction of holding hands and bodily contact. Very prominently from the Japanese films to the Korean films, but not in the Chinese or um, other, not very prominent in the Chinese and Anglophone versions. So I can't help thinking about this, um, this significance of that in the interwar period, or not interwar, Cold War period. And the reason mm-hmm. I, um, this actually leads to another question of the lack of, uh, of, of a child in many of the early Cold War films. 
um, that I also talked a little bit about why it's so important to only focus on the heterosexual love and lust in the Japanese and the Korean version, only allowing uh, the Wetsnik to have a child in the second Korean film, uh, very late, in the late 1960s. So the early 50s and 60s, just exclusively, like um, some version even eliminated uh, Green Snake, right? Just to focus on the love story, heterosexual love story, or the lust between these two. So I think that um, could be argued to be um, a contribution of the Japanese and Korean version during the Cold War. And the, the concluding section where I put in the Korean chapter uh, how to appreciate these films in the inter-Asian context has a lot to do with the um, kind of overarching storyline of love and reconciliation. So lust, love, and reconciliation became overarching because of the post-war, post-colonial moment for uh, uh, Japan and, and South Korea in this case, in particular in the uh, 50s and 60s in the post-colonial South Korean um, moment, similarly to the post-U.S. occupation, post-war Japanese um, sort of self-reaffirmation um, uh, of their cultural, political, national um, importance, but with an eye of reconciliation with other Asian neighbors and just patching up relationships. So the Chinese subject matter became a very useful platform. Yes, that's the 1950s Cold War stories. Uh, one suddenly one um, set in Japan, the three movies, and then one set in Korea, uh, three movies, but kind of out of a joint inner Asian, uh, inter Asian um, effort. Moving forward to um, the third part, um, I think we are entering. A very different part or different age, different stage. Um, we have three chapters. <laughs> I need to count my numbers this time. Yes, uh, three chapters, and um, each um, presents a very different take uh, of how the white stake. And is evolving or is um, being revived in different kind of mediums, different languages, different formats, different kind of purposes. So, um, chapter six, um, kind of moving on from nineteen fifties to nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties. Right, talk about um, mainly two novels uh, about. Um, a new take on um, the White Snake story. I will leave it to you uh, to say more, but it's very different um, from what we have read um, in the previous preceding chapters. Yes, yes, this is uh, more of a cross reading of a sort of a textual um, analysis. Um, however, I do feel like this fits quite well with the um, sort of multi media and multi-platform setup we already um, have. That is, um, this is more of a dialogue between um, texts and bodies or, or dancing and writing. So in, in this setup, I think both um, Yang Lin's um, novella 
white snake bisher from the late 90s. Um, and uh, Li Bihua's uh, Green Snake, Qingshe, uh, which is a novel from the late 80s and early 90s. She revised it um, over a few years. Um, is another kind of dance or dialogue or drama or conflict that I intend to set up, just like the previous chapters always has some sort of drama going on. These two, I think, um, it's very much about uh, the dance between writing and dancing, text and the body, but also about um, sort of a meta-narrative about the mainland and a meta-narrative about Hong Kong, but also with mainland. So each of them sort of with each other as a, as a mirror. So when you think about even just the characters of the white snake and green snake, they are also serving as each other's mirrors and um, very much about both about hybridity, hybrid bodies, but also um, iconoclasm, um, like how they are very much about transgressive um, sort of fighters. Um, I think what's most interesting, actually, for me, is this idea of the writing woman. So Green Snake, in the Green Snake story, is um, the autobiographical narrator, right? In Li Bihua's story, she is writing under the, the Broken Bridge. And in the time zone of roughly the 80s, because you see the markers of Tony, uh, Andy Lau, Tony Liang, and all these <laughs> 1980s Canton pop stars popping up in the, in the Li Bihua story. Um, and that's fascinating. However, if you, um, I think the central, um, the central focus of this chapter is still the Yang Lin um, novella, Green Snake, um, White Snake, Bai She, which is uh, very much about um, a white snake performer and dancer, her fate during the from the late 50s to the early 80s. And for me, that's really... Um, a very interesting sort of meta-narrative about uh, mainland China during all these political um, uh, transformations from um, the high socialist period, but also how um, um, the white snake story can be uh, appreciated um, as also a personal story, uh, as well as a political story in terms of um, uh, revolution and anti um um, anti-authoritarian um, spirits um, in sync with the mainstream, um, you know, um, anti-bureaucracy uh, and, and this sort of grassroots revolutionary spirit, but also sort of um, being um, criticized because it's sexual deviation. And, and so I see this very interesting tension between um, sexual transgression and political transgression and at the end of the chapter, I was trying to sort of uh, uh, bring them together and uh, sort of build up for actually later chapters in terms of contemporary activism. And I talk about how sexual um, um, uh, dissidents and political dissidents um, may be different, um, uh, but they may also share a lot of um, attributes. Definitely. I think it's... Um... A very giant leap from what we see in previous chapters or the immediate 
preceding chapter on the the Korean uh, cinema. Like you were talking about the um, had kind of emphasizing on the heterosexual relations, even excluding the role of Green Snake. While here, um, in both of these two novels uh, or two texts, um, they were kind of emphasizing on the homosexual uh, relationship or feelings between the Green Snake and the White Snake, and also using. Uh, the green snake, not to mention using green snake as the uh, main na- narrator, right? but the white snake as well as the um, the fangirl kind of mm, not impersonating, but impersonating or fulfilling the role both as the Xu Xian or sometimes as uh, the green snake or sometimes as the abbot, as the liberator. Mm. That's why I felt it's really mm, kind of set apart from what we have seen previously, but not um, invented out of nowhere. But I was just, as you were saying, it's just a um, picked up original or existing picked up existing points with certain new twists of who tell the story uh, or what kind of story the person is telling. Yeah, I, I really appreciate Yang Geling's multi-level storytelling, and I think that is very important to be included here. And um, the multimedia aspect of the text and body, dancing and writing, I think also works very well, uh, even when the chapter itself is more about cross-reading of a text. So I, I was like debating um, whether... Um, this is a good transitioning um, chapter, which I felt it is because it also thematically opened up um, all the important aspects I want to talk about in the remaining two chapters, which is even more contemporary. And many of the things, um, you know, um, just was opened up uh, by the two films that I haven't even seen and just came out after my manuscript was sent into printer, uh, which just came out in the past few months in mainland China, right? The, the, the sequel to um, the white snake animation, the green snake uh, animation, which opened in July this year. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I, don't, yeah, yeah. I don't know that. And which is very much about transgender and, um, yeah. And uh, of course, homosexuality, but also um, transmigration, uh, reincarnation, and it's mm-hmm. it's fascinating from what I've read. <laughs> and the other one, I suppose, the other you're one talking is about Cant- Cantonese Cantonese, Cantonese uh, opera. opera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From May, I saw the trailer as yeah. well. <laughs> I read it on everything. <laughs> Just don't have the access mm-hmm. to watch it in yeah. theater. Yeah. One more thing about this chapter is I feel. Um, you're talking about the element of dancing. Because throughout the book, we're talking about um, theatric, uh, um, uh, theatrical performance or other versions, art forms, but most of them we're talking about vocal, kind of what kind of, it's an opera or it's kind of tanzi or, uh, or um, other versions, English or a certain dialect. But here, 
you're talking about, even though it's a text form, but you're analyzing,、um, and also that's what these two authors, Li Bihuaning and Gulin, were writing about—kind of the dancing, the body movement, the movement of the bodies of these two snakes, or no, not、uh, of the two snakes. Yes, in Li Bihuaning, but also of the dancer's、uh, body in Yan Gulin. I think it's.、Um, Really, a inseparable element of、uh, the whole story and also the whole the, the book. So,、um, just、uh, following what you said, I think it did a、uh, perfect job in transitioning, not just chronologically but also thematically, weave everything together. I really want to echo that very briefly.、Um, one, if you only want to watch two minutes of the nineteen sixty. Tin Sang or version the black and white, watch the two minute where、um, I think the subtitle is "Dance to Seduce." I think I have a section on that film about how the choreography of the body of the dancer,、um, you know, Cui En He, Tin Sang's wife, who plays White Snake, is so powerful. The seduction is so powerful, even when it's black and white, and her costume design is superb. To combine just to really、um, sort of present her body、uh, shape really well, but also the choreography and the fan. There is a fluffy feather fan that's accentuating her her power of seduction. Is very important. So there is indeed, as you suggest, a, a thread of the body.、Um, you know, hand holding, intimacy, dancing、um, to seduce. Uh, all the way to this chapter, and it will open up to the last chapter about the eternal body of the of the snake woman. Yeah, thank you for that. That's yeah. Before we go to the final chapter, there is one more <laughs> chapter seven, right? About these two,、um, I think, brilliantly done.、Uh, oh, three, three. <laughs> yes, <laughs> three.、Um, I apologize for my bad numbers. <laughs> no, there, there are too many texts. I'm just admiring you, admiring you, remembering anything. No, no.、Um, yeah, I will let go of my numbering. But in any case, we're talking about can coming back to、um, U.S. again,、uh, or not coming back to U.S. but coming back to the Anglophone world again,、mm-hmm. kind of English version, English take. Uh, of the、um, white snake story, one、um, is the、uh, Pulitzer Prize winning、mm-hmm. opera, and the other is Mary Zipperman's one act opera、uh, play.、Um, yes,、mm-hmm. play. Sorry, I'm sorry.、Mm-hmm. Play. And the third is、uh, um, like eight minute digital fashion film. Digital, yeah, very short. Yes, digital.、Mm-hmm. How do you call it? A film or digital、um, video? Mm. Video of、um, of the story.、Mm-hmm. Yeah,、um, I'm really excited about this. I wrote、um, a blog for the University of Michigan Press called "The Power of the Legend" on August ninth,、uh, the publication date of the book. Basically, focusing on only one that is、um, the Boston-based. Asian American activist opera company, the White Snake Projects,、um, founded by Cyrus Lin Jacobs, the creator of 
the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, Madame White Snake. She's a librettist, and she invited Zhou Long, the Chinese-born uh, Chinese American composer, uh, which um, Zhou Long won uh, the Pulitzer Prize for music in 2011. But um, because of my encounter with the 2010 Boston performance and um, the Madame White Snake Opera, I started to follow uh, the White Snake Project when she founded this activist opera company. And throughout the pandemic, I've been participating very actively online for all her digital projects. So she's real, the real sort of avant-gardist and trying to create a digital live opera during the pandemic. So people can actually watch opera live through um, webcast, like um, crowdcast. I forgot the web platform, but it's a platform that's going to allow um, all the technology to come together to present live opera on the web during pandemic. Um, But she has a very distinctive um, purpose of um, um, outreaching also activist project um, to speak for the minority um, groups in the U.S. So she did um, immigrants project projects for the DACA recipients, projects for um, the incarcerated, mainly African-American population after the um, George Floyd um, death. And, and, and she is still doing um, a lot of projects for the um, essential workers in the pandemic. So the reason I just uh, started talking about this is because this three Anglophone projects um, in chapters seven, um, have a lot to do with the contemporary um, moment in the U.S. and um, and that is very powerful um, to to wrestle with how a, a legend um, still um, sort of inspires um, on multiple platforms for multiple people. You know, you have the Indian, British, Canadian, Indrani. Um, Using this as a um, as a celebrity um, photographer, filmmaker, and her her first film uh, to pay tribute to a um, openly gay um, designer, you know Alexander McQueen, who is very much um, sort of devoted to a feminist and environmentalist cause in his at least his sort of some of his final runway shows and his. Uh, Manta uh, dress, which is the series that's most popular, uh, represented by um, deep sea creatures, you know, snakes and um, other sea creatures. So I think the the connection is quite fascinating. I was very surprised myself how this has led me to talk about minority activism and responses to COVID-19. <laughs> yes, I think yeah. it's a it's a, a an amazing moment that you feel um, you could connect with what you have been working on scholarly to the um, contemporary world, seemingly very distant um, political or social topics that they suddenly at certain moments come together. I think. Um, of course, I think in um, on page two hundred twenty one, this what you have quoted Jacob, um, the producer of um, um, 
the opera White, Madame White Snake talking about Madame White Snake as a woman, a quote, a woman, a yellow-skinned minority, an immigrant from outside, is um, really um, a wonderful phrase that captures um, certain characters of Madame White Snake herself, and also what the uh, central issues or concerns. That's, yeah, um, I wrote. I wrote about her as a resident alien, like all of us, <laughs> before we we get our green card, and, or or being naturalized. So, oh, otherwise we uh, we are all the green snake by Li Pihua, the riding under the broken bridge, witnessing everything. Also too wild, too wild. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah. the 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 positive uh, message is um, it's a tale about difference, but it mm-hmm. really tells us about how similar we are. So it's it's um, it's very much um, a window into. Uh, I think Edima said something in the blurb, like a window onto the imagination of the other. Um, but both for it's like a mirror image, both for the east and the west. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so moving on to uh, the final chapter. Uh, that's also the latest technology, or uh, not necessarily technology, but latest form or format mm-hmm. of how the white snake was um, continuing to um, be reimagined and revived mm-hmm. um, online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why this book can never be finished. And as I mentioned, these two big budget production just came out in the past three months from May and Ju- July. And I just wish I'm there to be able to. Um, so doing research about China um, while you're not in China, <laughs> still, uh, especially contemporary uh, popular culture, I still consider this project a project about popular culture. Um, it is a popular cultural project, although it has a very strong emphasis on folk traditions and the power of the avant-gardist and radical projects. But it's very much about popular culture and how we um, cannot really separate. You know, my first book is called The Avant-Garde and the Popular <laughs> and just tries to connect how all these experimental and radical projects uh, leading the way to the future have deep traditional or folk roots, but also have, um, um, it's viable for popular consumption precisely because it's radicalism and it's sort of avant-gardist experimentation. So these two doesn't um, contradict each other, which uh, brings us to maybe the webtoons and the the other more, uh, as you say, um, high-tech, low-tech, but Online and the the I really love the opening of the White Snake animation. The legend begins, which we were talking about the sequel, the Green Snake resurrects. I don't know how they have the English translated, but in Chinese it's Qing Shu Jie Qi. The the sequel, yeah, yeah. Um, so the Bai Shu Yuan Qi from twenty nineteen by the Light Chaser animation. Uh, the opening has a has a. Ink brush painting opening for one minute, and I have 
two um, screenshots, I think. One is at the very opening of the book in the introduction. Um, the other is on page 252, um, one of the concluding visuals, basically, <laughs> um, because I intended to have it sort of bookend the, the narrative. And I really uh, think um, ink painting animation, um, you can go back to um, Daisy uh, Zhu's book and how it was basically a product of socialist China uh, from, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, but also um, it very much um, sort of creates this tension um, and had, um, it's also a very interesting sort of avant-gardist revolutionary political project, but it has its sort of, it echoes what I just mentioned. It has its sort of deep roots and has its uh, commercial viability as well. I'm not sure what did they do with the sequel and um, tempted, very curious to see uh, whether such sort of, um, this, is, as I mentioned, is only one minute in the opening. So I wonder what kind of ink brush um, animation will appear in the sequel, whether it's completely out. And, and I think audience, readers, listeners in China are privileged to, to tell us <laughs> about the visuals in the sequel. Mm-hmm. Yes, so um, I think in this final chapter, um, you are trying to, as much as you could, tell us what was going on now in the popular um, uh, entertainment world, different take, whether it's a song or uh, a, a, a show that um, presented or represented different aspects of the uh, white snake story. Mm-hmm. While uh, um, mm-hmm. yes, go ahead. Um, you can finish your your thought. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. uh, I was trying to say that um, while this story, the legend uh, of white snake, is never ending, as you were talking about, there are two films that just came out. Probably, or definitely, more would be coming out. Um, the book has its limitation in its number. So, I mean, in page number, I mean. So we can only uh, start at a certain point and end at a certain point. Um, uh, I think we had a wonderful journey uh, with Leon about this book um, today. And uh, just curious, what is your next journey? What will you be working on after the White Snake story? Never that, ending. Um, <laughs> never ending. Um, yeah, I actually um, want to mention Gonglin Na before we get to the mm. next project because I, um, I've been paying attention to her for a long time and consider her one of the avant-gardist performing artists of contemporary Chinese popular culture. She's one of the person that can exemplify the avant-garde and the popular, um, you know, she sort of makes this shenqi that's super popular, but then most people think it's incomprehensible and, and hence it's popular. <laughs> so, but this incomprehensibility incom- speaks to a lot of her sort of experimental avant-gardist take on, uh, and her collaboration with her husband now, uh, who is trained in like, um, 
Guqing or um, like different kinds of traditional, um, um, in his case, Germanic. And then um, Gong Minai herself is also trained in um, opera and other local traditions. So I'm just really curious about this couple and um, and um, was uh, making some good use of uh, her song, Fa Hai Ni Bu Dong Ai, right? So there's a lot of uh, connections to that folk avant-garde and popular that trajectory I was tracing. Um, and maybe one more um, thing about the White Snake Project that I didn't get to talk about um, is um, I'm really interested in the, the title that the publisher gave to the book. The global white snake, and I was like debating how global it is if it's only about East Asia and um, Anglophone word, you know. But maybe we can treat white global white snake as an aspirational concept, you know. The white snake legends belong to the world; it's global because it's multi-directional travels, both in the inter-Asian and global uh, spheres. You know, we, um, you know, I. I don't have the capacity to talk about many other languages, but the first translation to a Western language is in French. And there's many other, uh, uh, you know, um, traditions that we could talk about. Uh, but because of my own limitations, I want to focus on East Asian, uh, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and the Anglophone word, in particular using the American um, sort of uh, framework as a way to... Um, to connect the, the middle part of the East Asian uh, trajectories. But I do want to say it's very much about continuities. I want to talk about how historical continuities as you opened late Qing to contemporary um, with the Cold War uh, um, as not an oddity, a disruption, but as a continuation of many of the trends, but also geopolitical convergences. So it operates on both, you know, synchronic and diachronic. Um, so both historical and, um, and um, geopolitical. So I really want to talk about that as a, as a ending. Of course, um, if you're interested, you can read uh, my blog. It says everything about what I want to say about the contemporary activist uh, message. I think that's very central. As to my next project, um, I've been working on the Dutch documentary filmmaker Joris Evans um, since 2009 when I was um, writing or revising my first book in uh, Stockholm, where um, it was very close to Nijmegen, uh, Netherlands, and all the places that's important for the archives for Evans. The reason I went to Evans is because of Tianhan again. So everything comes from Tianhan. And in the, in the tracing of the making of the national anthem of the PRC, um, I discovered how Joris Evans um, and the African-American act, artist Paul Robeson, people um, born in 1898 and this whole generation were very important to our understanding of not just contemporary China, but also uh, the interwar international avant-garde. I called this generation, uh, born in 1898, uh, grew up in 1918, the interwar international avant-garde. Includes Tianhan, Evans, and Robin, and uh, Brecht, Eisenstein, and all the um, Germanic um, tradition, as well as uh, Soviet, um, Russian avant-garde, and other um, 
participants. So I'm very excited to to um, finally have time during my sabbatical. But unfortunately, I'm still here and not based in China. I claimed in my blog that's written a month ago um, that I will be based in China now, um, but that's not the case. So hopefully I'll be based in China in the near future and uh, in uh, Leiden, where I will be a visiting scholar um, at Leiden University for the spring and then um, get the Evans project and the Robeson project uh, yeah, started finally. But thank you so much for, for this um, quite extensive conversation. And thank you for all your work, um, reading and just uh, coming up with um, very interesting, detailed questions. Thank you for uh, joining us. And again, to our readers, uh, we have here Dr. Uh, Luo Liang with her new book, The Global White Snake, that just came out with University of Michigan Press, I think. August 2021, right? Just came yes. out. Yes. And um, um, just a plug on the digital platform, I forgot to mention, this book has a digital platform, um, Falcon, and the link is, on, um, I think, at the last page of the table of contents. Um, and it includes all illustrations, all 57 color illustrations in high definition with zooming functions without any need for subscription. So you can just go to the link and scroll down. Don't, don't look at, you know, you need to subscribe for the content, but scroll down and go to sources and you'll have all the color images um, if you're just interested in looking at them. And it has all the information as well. Yeah, thank you. Another reason to read more carefully each book. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Luo Liang, um, for joining us, and uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we uh, appreciate your time and hope to see you again or hope to um, join us again next time. Thank you for your time. <laughs>